Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. Logan Gelbrick is the founder of Deuce, a brand of unique, coaching-oriented strength and conditioning gyms. You gotta check these guys out on social media. Deuce is doing things that very few places in the country are able to pull off, uh, and they're doing it with a quality that is nearly unmatched. Logan himself competed in the North American Strongman Championships in 2016. Before that, competed in the CrossFit Games. That was 2011. And before that, he had a brief stint as a professional baseball player. Now he travels the world, spreading the good word and helping people, quote, hold the standard. What is so appealing to me about Logan is his drive for improvement. That is what he and his brand are essentially centered on. There's no automatic right, there's no final destination, there is just a healthy process, a healthy relationship to constant improvement, growing oneself, growing the community around you in similar ways, and I'm telling you, it's just a a refreshing way to approach strength, conditioning, but also business, one's personal mindset, one's relationships, and all other areas of life. The timing couldn't be better because Logan just put out a book. It's called Going Right, a logical justification for pursuing your dreams. It's literally like a roadmap for, in his own words, a decision-making framework that clears the way for men and women to pursue their peak expression. The guy is driven, he is inspiring, and we are now happy to call him a friend of the project. You're going to learn a lot from today's podcast with Coach Logan Gelbrick. I was an athlete. Uh, I... I specialized my athletic pursuits really early, inappropriately early. <laughs> and how, uh, how early would you say that? That's a convert. I mean, that could be a podcast on its own. Yeah, for sure. Um, not necessarily proud of that, especially knowing what I know now. Uh, you know, I sort of shut everything else down and was focusing on baseball at by twelve. Wow. You know, uh, so I played other sports, you know, before that, but. I just knew so specifically and so passionately that I wanted to play Major League Baseball that in my little brain, I thought that, uh, you know, focusing that early would, would do it, you know. Um, you know I, I probably have the exact opposite stance in this chair today. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I was, uh, you know, uh, pretty good player at a, at a not so good high school, you know, and, uh, and played division one baseball and was, you know, um, drafted in 2008 by the San Diego Padres played a few seasons up and down through, through their, uh, organization. And then my career ended and it ended way earlier than, than anyone who, uh, is setting goals would want it to end, you yeah. know? And so, that that puts us to, you know, life 2.0. And I think that transition can really wreck a lot of people. Yep. Um, you know, folks get lost along the way. There, there can be some identity issues there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think how, one of the how main, did it end? Can ahead. I ask that before you go on? Yeah, go ahead. What, what was the question? How did it end? Oh, I just had a not so great 2009 season you know i got yeah. released which is how you say i got fired in, in uh, professional <laughs> right. sports right um you know and and uh i'm not the type of person who like disagrees with that decision i think i i would have released me if i was you know that organization mm-hmm. and uh you know there was a there was a moment there that off season where it was decision making time and i could have 
lengthened my professional career, but I didn't see that that choice as one that led to the major leagues. And so that made it easy for me to say, hey, uh, I did what I could with this, and now it's time to move in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And um, I just felt really prepared to, to move laterally. And, you know, I, I feel grateful for that. Um, and I think I was able to do that, and this is really important. I was able to move laterally away from baseball into a high-level expression of myself um, without hedging against my effort in that sport, meaning I didn't kind of pull back the reins on my athletic career to kind of like ease the transition. You see what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Mm -hmm. I was full-on plan A only sold out for this idea of becoming a, a you know a major league catcher um, and not but but and uh, I knew I could do other things yeah right and and, and, it, and it's important that I say that because I think a lot of especially young athletes don't see those two things as possible at the same time that can kind of jam up our brain a little bit if we, mm -hmm. if we don't we don't hear that and um, it seems like you either fully commit to this thing and get your heart broken <laughs> or uh, you kind of sort of try your best but not really yeah uh, because you're, you're really looking into the future to this plan B thing and uh, you know when you're trying to do something extremely difficult like be the best in the world at something you just you can't afford that kind of plan b mentality you know it's and, uh, we see that i want to touch on this a little bit we see um dude it's like an epidemic in a very specific age range of kids that we work with um who have stigmatized what they call a try hard you know what i'm saying and and it's exactly yeah. it's this strange it's <clears throat> strange like you an adult can see it immediately it's like, mm -hmm. okay, that group of kids is putting up a defense. They don't want to fall on their face and, and have given it their all. You know what I mean? There's, such, there's vulnerability in giving everything you have. And they're just yeah. clearly putting that defense up. But <clears throat> You know what I'm talking about, Alex? Yeah. Or is the, and, and we're talking about a very specific group. And it's, it's about 1,000 kids in the very centralized location. Try hard is, is a four-letter word. But like you say, I mean, you can't go anywhere with that. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting dynamic, you know, and it, it, it I understand it, you totally. know, that, that, that phenomenon is there because most everyone, you know, including adults, we just don't talk about it. Uh, we're afraid, you know, people are afraid and it feels like, uh, the, the letdown, the come down of a best effort mm -hmm. try and a failure is something that like is a mirror that is just too big mm -hmm. and too uh, scary to face. And uh, there's there's a paradox there because right. you cannot, you cannot, will not ever meet your best self without going there. Yeah. And not going there feels like you can you can save yourself from this failure thing. And so a lot of what I, you know, talk about, um, you know, as a coach and then later as a, 
an author, uh, this theme keeps showing up, which is, you know, um, there is, there's a myth there. And the myth is that we have these two choices. And it feels like one choice is this sort of like dreamland, this ideal outcome. And it, and it seems like this ideal choice just isn't that realistic. And it's not, it's not really safe, and it's quite unreasonable. It's like for crazy people. Mm-hmm. And then it seems like there's another choice, which is just a little bit more normal. And it's more reasonable, and it's much safer. And, you know, the people who are unwilling to try are sort of looking at this safer choice. Mm-hmm. And what you don't realize is that neither choice is safe. Right. There is uncertainty in both decisions. Right. Now, only one of those choices gives you a chance to realize right. something great. Right. And when you sort of see it through that lens, then it's like, hey, man, I'm scared. You're scared. We don't know how this is going to go. I'm going to choose eight days a week. I'm going to choose the choice that gives me a chance to have some upside, to really win, you know? And uh, I think it it helps, it doesn't guarantee anything, but it helps to show people that this other choice where you're sort of hedging, I'm not gonna try my best because I don't wanna actually fail, I wanna be safe, that safety isn't real. Mm-hmm. You're right. right. You can get 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road trying to be safe and your the rug gets pulled out from under you, you know? Right. Your career changes, your relationship changes, your, you know, uh, there's some sort of external uh, thing enters your life, and you are so unprepared for that, so unremarkable, so uncompelling, that in seeking safety, you've made yourself the most fragile version of of yourself possible. Yeah, no doubt. Fragile is such an interesting word. Here's one reason I think that this makes complete sense. I don't know, cut this if it sounds like I'm bragging at all, but just to give you a background of, of what I've been up to, um, yeah. I, I, I've, uh, I, I go to school a lot. I've got a couple master's degrees. The first was from Northwestern, which is pretty close to us in Chicago, and the most recent was Harvard, where I studied human development psychology with a focus on cognitive neuroscience. So one of the things that we do in, in the build of the Good Athlete Project, we were like, we are going to look at at this thing, this thing being the athletics as an atmosphere, as a potential for education, in a, in a, at a depth and in a way that people have not looked at it before. And what we might, and, and one thing that's come true through the podcast and being able to talk to people like you, like people who are kind of getting it right, is so many of these ideas are rooted in like very legitimate science and psychology and you are probably beyond most in, in your ability to name those things or, or really mm-hmm. deeply conceptualize them. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but you're exactly right. And for people who are, people who, are um, who fall into that category of I'd rather play the odds, I'd rather be safe than, than dream and put myself out there the whole time, I mean you hit the nail on the head. It's like you get this feedback loop, especially you mentioned over the course of 40 years, you've got this feedback loop. Well, if I just walk to that corner store if I wake up at this time, walk to that corner store, come back to this house, and I do all these things, you know, you get this feedback loop where it's like, I hate to say it, but it's like, well, I didn't die yet. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you have this very safe, like something must be working. 
Uh, but then what, what you recognize is that you get to the point um, where you have to manage adversity. It, it's an absolute in everyone's life, one of the only absolutes that we've got. And you've and it's like having a it's like having no immune system. Yeah. Right? Like you, you, you can't do it. There yeah, there are certain environments that are that are ripe for this type of development. Yeah. And um, athletics just so happens to be one of them. Because mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we decide that there are some, some lines in the field and there's uh, some rules and there's a, mm -hmm. you know, a way to keep track and these are all parameters that provide feedback for learning and development. Now you ramp up the sort of passion, mm -hmm. you know, in the United States, for example, we have just sort of, you know, semi-arbitrarily <laughs> over years decided that, you know, things like baseball, basketball, golf, football, these things matter, right? Yeah, Whereas right. like, you know, uh, I don't know, darts matters less or something like that, right? right? And they're, they're all just games, right? Yep. But when you have <clears throat> tens of millions of kids vying for just a couple dozen jobs, mm-hmm it ramps up the intensity of this development. And that is, just like you said, an environment to look in this sort of mirror, right? Mm -hmm. And I think uh, we, we don't need only sports to do that. You know, you can seek out these environments anywhere. You know, the, the, the process, um, you know, cliche word, but critical word, the process of an artist iterating his or her work is no different than the process of a hitter iterating his or her swing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and, and these feedback loops are there. I'd like to look at and put myself in environments that drive adaptation between my ears mm -hmm. and physically um, at the extremes. Because like you said, walking around to the corner store at home, it is an environment, but maybe the, the, the parameters there are not forcing adaptation. You know, so you spend 20 years trying to be the best in the world at, at baseball. Doesn't need to even be about baseball at that point. Right. You sort of learn some skills that are highly, highly transferable in, in that way. Uh, you can. You don't need to enroll yourself in, um, in everything to learn the lessons either. You know, you look at at uh, the military and, and warfare. Major consequences. Right. Right. That is an environment that drives adaptation because the feedback loop is so critical human mm -hmm. life right and so you can look at the, those behaviors and just notice wow these people act differently you communicate differently in the military where if your communication is poor people die right mm, yeah. but if you're living a life of this sort of perceived safety we see what i call like leaky performance you know mm -hmm. you see habits and norms that that are so suboptimal but they're not punished because the feedback loop isn't as strong Right, and so, you know, so that's uh, a great term too. Yeah, if if you are finding yourself in an, in an environment that is more normal, where yep. where uh, human life isn't at stake, you can still have the awareness to include these sort of best practices, and that that's the type of skill transfer that I think we're all interested in, whether or not we're we're aware of it or not. Right. You know, right. Well, and, that, and that's and you're using the perfect language here, I think, because uh, when you mentioned just uh, like it, it process, transferring process, that is the thing, no doubt about it. You, you, there are different stakes in different environments, as you've rightfully uh, alluded to, and the feedback loops are very tight when the stakes are super high. But then in most of our life, and I think this is an unintended, unintended consequence of like the positivity movement of whatever the '90s 
is that, and un again, unintended, because I think absolutely, if you could choose to be positive or negative, I mean, the choice is obvious, but you mm -hmm. don't want to create environments that don't include account accountability, because you ultimately will just, the leaky performance will just grow and grow yeah. until, yeah. Yeah, yeah, as, as emotional beings, it's quite easy and preferable to choose positive stimulus, mm -hmm. you know, feels good, uh, you know, you telling me, hey man, you're a great coach, uh, you know, nice job out there, it just feels a lot better than the opposite. Right. Now here's the, the ironic part of this is positive feedback doesn't drive adaptation. Mm -hmm. And, and and that's not my preference. I mean, this is like I think I get in trouble as like the negative feedback guy. Um, you know, look, it's not my preference to create a world where where uh, negative feedback is like put on a pedestal. But right. based on what we know about adaptation, we need this sort of disconfirming information to to see what we can't see. Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, coincidence, the environments we just spoke about, high stakes environments tend to, in a self-selecting type of way, embrace negative feedback. Mm -hmm. You know, the books get written about those environments, right. not the other way around. Right. We need to remember that, right? The reason why, uh, you know, your favorite NFL team, your favorite NBA basketball team, the language in that organization is rich in negative feedback. Mm-hmm because that is how people get better. I need to understand what the next version of myself or this team looks like, and we need to be able to share the truth, which includes this sort of negative feedback uh, loop inside of the thing. Now, when you look at low stakes environments, you know, like corporate America, where things are a little bit more protected, mm -hmm. you know, entry level kind of cubicle job, and, and I don't mean to stereotype, but I'm just sort of, it's exactly what I'm doing right now, uh, is, we have this emotional attraction to positive feedback, and it's just simply more difficult to send and receive negative feedback. Mm -hmm. So there's just less of it, yeah. right? And so, so you know, a point guard talks to his center in the NBA much differently than a mid-level manager talks to his entry-level employee, mm -hmm. because at some point, if I'm not trying to you know, win an NBA championship. I didn't devote my whole life to this. Right. And we both care about this outcome greater than ourselves more than anything. And it just doesn't tell me, it doesn't pay for me to tell you, uh, hey, I need you to, to pick it up in this area. Mm -hmm. And here's what I'm saying. You're really deficient in, in this, that, and the other thing. All right. But when we're trying to win an NBA championship, we can get over this need for positivity and get to what matters, right? And which, which, you know, really pays the bills, so to speak, in development yeah. is, is negative feedback. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I'm, I'm picturing that, um, that workplace environment and it's like, okay, if you're in the NBA playoffs, a 5% increase is make or break. It's the difference in the workplace environment. It's like, ah, do I really want to get, I could coast through the next two days, Thursday, Friday, or I could potentially have these difficult conversations and just let the 5% slide. I think, it's obvious what people yeah. choose. I wonder how you think about this. So we have, we've got some rules at the Good Athlete Project and all the things that I'm involved in regarding communication. And you mentioned something really interesting, um, like positive. I, I'm not into. I want like you. I want to be positive. I'd, I'd prefer it over negative 
10 times out of 10. But it's just, but if I want like to grow, if I want the people around me to grow, it's like, it's like adaptation in strength and conditioning. It, it, it's, it's the perfect metaphor without stress and then recovery, there is no growth, but, but the stress is sort of the key component there. Um, otherwise you get fat and slow and, and that's just the way that all the cells operate. There's, yeah. there's something that I, I, I've heard you say before actually, um, that I think is a, an incredible metaphor for this sort of communication. I think instead of being always positive, which is what some people seek out, I think the sort of the bedrock psychological concept of conversations within an organization is like safety and trust. And if it's mm -hmm. like, look, I'm not, when I call you out, I'm not making fun of you. It's not like, I don't, I, I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not mad at you, Jim. You know, uh, yeah. uh, it's not you as a person that's wrong, but this behavior does need to be reconsidered. And those are yeah. two different things. Yeah, we, we have, um, we have a model for culture and, uh, you know, we're sort of, uh, of course, borrowing on concepts that are much bigger and, and, uh, um, more impactful than, than ourselves, including the, the, the Harvard camp, uh, you know, and so the, the ingredients that we say that we need inside of a high performance culture, and you can sort of fact check this around your mind a little bit, is trust and willingness. Mm -hmm. And when you have groups that either filter for or develop yeah. sort of asymmetrical high levels of trust and willingness, you, you're you're set up to do things that other teams and organizations cannot do. Great, that's great. Right? And uh, you know, for the maybe like the non-athlete folks, uh, one way to think about this is um, I bring up a lot is uh, therapy. You know, you can go to therapy, mm -hmm. but if you don't have trust and willingness in that system, nothing's going to happen. You're going to pay a bunch of money and sit in a room for an hour. Right. But if you have unique trust and willingness to do something while you're in there, mm -hmm. you will be able to operate at your edge, which is where this development happens. And so, you know, uh, just to take one step back before you, you sort of filter for develop this trust and willingness in a system or a team or a company, uh, most teams, systems, companies don't just foster these ingredients while you're inside the organization, but they also, they, they filter for it, meaning there's some sort of rite of passage, you know, and, and it really helps in high level military teams, uh, athletic teams, even high level companies where it's just more arduous to get the jersey, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? Yep, and, yep. And, and, and it helps to know on these teams that anyone who's new or comes through or is on a team with you went through the same sort of arduous path to get there. And what that does is I know that when I look across the room at somebody, there is a certain level of sacrifice that, that it's demonstrated their willingness. There's a certain level of... of commitment that allows for this trust right mm -hmm. and and now it's much easier to speak in the way that you just said about the truth which is like hey here's what i need you're missing your spot mm -hmm. right if i don't trust you or you don't trust me it doesn't feel like i can share that right I, I feel like the only thing i can tell you is i really like your outfit today and i'll see you on friday mm -hmm. right yeah. and then that's the sort of passive low performance communication that that dominates low performance teams, mm -hmm. you know? And so, uh, I think the, the caveat that I 
that I like to add so that, you know, because people get bent out of shape on this negative feedback thing. Sometimes, you know, we're interested in the truth. Yeah. And, it, and it's a culture of truth, right? And so high-performance teams are just operating. They're, they're able to make better decisions because the system itself is extremely interested in the truth, which includes negative parts, mm-hmm. right? Now, I would just observe that most low-performance teams are not really interested in the truth. They're interested in what is acceptable and easy. So there's a bias towards this positive feedback. And so now you have a whole culture and a system that what they're saying isn't even really the truth. Hmm. Right? It's sort of biased towards uh, the good stuff. And so now we have, um, uh, we're making decisions on bad information. Now, now politics can arise. Now these sort of toxic cultural things can arise. And, and why, why can this arise? Well, there, there's just not enough trust and willingness in the system to do that, right? And and that's why winning championships or you know, um, you know winning wars or, or whatever the extreme is, right, demands this type of environment. Because look, in order to do that, you and I would need to operate at our edge, mm-hmm. and I need to feel like I can go there and be safe. Right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's like, uh, I'm just, I can't help but tumble into metaphors here, but it's like, yeah, like, what do you expect? If, if you only eat dessert, like, what do you, what do you expect? You gotta, you gotta have some mm-hmm. vegetables along the way. Where are your Brussels sprouts? Mm-hmm. But in, in, and, uh, from the language side, we try to, I even try to steer away from positive and negative feedback and just lend, like you said, uh, a culture of truth. I just, it's just accurate. It's like mm-hmm, it's like exactly. we either did it or we didn't do it. That there's no yep. real judgment there. It's it's we're just yep. looking at it and, and evaluating. Yep. Um, but that's a really hard, that's a really hard pill to swallow for some. So you mentioned um, the filtration. Uh, when you bring people in, is there like an onboarding process? Because what when you said that initially, what jumped out to me was like, you know, we've mentioned the military a couple times. It that for sure comes from that. Like, why do you trust the person next to you like when the stakes are at their absolute highest? Because you've been through the shit together. You, like, you've been through so much. Like, there, you absolutely get it. It's like what football doubles, you know what I mean, I, as an example. Mm-hmm. Like, you go through all this stuff, come back out the other side. Um, how do you try, how do you replicate that in the workplace? Because those obviously are extremes. Totally, yeah. You know, I talk about this rite of passage thing and like, you know, when I'm coaching other businesses or, um, you know, gym owners or whatever the, the conversation is. And, and you know, you got to throw the caveat out there that this isn't military selection. So you're not having people right. get, get in the, the, the cold water and, and rock for miles. All right. You know, right. you can't shoot at them. Uh, and, and here's the, the caveat that I throw out is the specifics of the rite of passage matters much less than the fact that there is one, mm-hmm. right? And, and so you can even look to any selection process in high-level military teams. Is It's not very precise. You know, what I say is, like, there's no clipboard and the, the, the instructor in BUDS or whatever, <laughs> or ranger school is not saying, like, uh, you know, hey, Jim, is it is it – 115 push-ups or is it 125 like I forgot what we did last year it's like no it's just shitty right Right. like it's just I just need people to quit right right I I need people to 
endure this thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's get in the water, roll around the sand, Uh, get back in the water, roll around the sand. Right. Right. And so people get hung up on like, well, you know, what stage do we do this, that, and the other thing? Take the principles. And the principles are it needs to be a little bit longer than you want, a little bit more difficult. There needs to be easier options. You know, you need to be able to, to, to ring out, you know. And mm-hmm. so for us, uh, our process is uh, in the context of coaching and coaches is um, it's called coaches prep. And so we don't uh, hire people from the outside. We sort of develop people from the inside. And it's just harder to coach with us than it is anywhere else. Yeah. You know, at least without getting on an airplane. I just, I'm looking for a place that, that's sort of more, more difficult. And there's a long line. Most people quit. And uh, everyone who's doing this rite of passage could make money faster, easier, dozens of other places mm-hmm. within five miles of us. Yeah. And, you know, I could get into the specifics of what that is, but what I'm saying is it doesn't matter. Right. It really doesn't matter. Just those truths are what matter. Because on the other side, what we have are people, and I can say this, uh, staff of people uh, across three gyms that uh, wouldn't rather be anywhere else in the world. And that is powerful. That's a that's a secret weapon. We can just do things, provide an experience. We can grow. We can communicate in ways that other teams cannot because of that truth, mm-hmm. right? And so, so this this rite of passage is is something that is critical to not just who gets on the the team, so to speak, but how the team looks and feels. Uh, there's a certain ego check where everyone is in this headspace of development right there's no like master or masters who are like off off uh, off the clock in terms of development mm-hmm. right and so culturally we have a place where everyone is highly interested in how they can be better they're highly interested in receiving negative feedback and we've sort of normalized that and made that sexy we've made that like a cornerstone of what the organization does and it just allows us to do things that are going to be, you know, necessary if we're going to do something remarkable and difficult, like be in business, you know, right. and, 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 and that's just our, that's just our learning environment. Just like earlier we talked about sport being a, a feedback loop, you know, environment, you know, business is that Yeah. there's just, there's just an unlimited amount of people who are trying to do the same thing and it mm. creates attrition and it makes it difficult and you have this like you know this bottom line thing and you have this you know this mm. sort of like um, you know marketplace that that provides the same type of feedback that you know uh, a strong conference does in in right. athletics or you know That's the American League you know is is the business market that's right, and, and I wonder. You mentioned. I, I wonder how many people recognize just how challenging what you've been able to do is. Um, I think it's really. It's actually exceptional, both statistically speaking. How many businesses like yours actually survive and thrive and expand? Uh, but just like the daily operations, keeping the lights on. Um, mm-hmm. That is. So that's very much of interest to me. Um, 
but I want to hear about, I've been looking at this painting in the back of your uh, room. Yeah. Um, what I'd like to hear about also, I, bo- I've been going back and forth. Okay. I've been going back and forth. Uh, what yeah. I'd like to know is, okay, so when you are not like up to your neck in everything, in developing mm-hmm. this culture, in, in consulting other businesses, and in, in everything that you do, a lot of things, what does the other side of you look like? Um, I know that you ride a skateboard to work, it looks like. <laughs> That's right, uh, yeah. <laughs> tell me, uh, yeah, let, let's get some insight into the other things that make you, you. Yeah, uh, you know, I think I'm, I'm really misconstrued a little bit uh, because I sort of backdoored into a, a career or a, a lifestyle that puts me in front of people a lot. Um, you know, authority and power are, are weird things because it's it's given to you. You don't mm-hmm. claim it, and if you do claim it, it's not really real. Uh, and so, um, I think I've accidentally become someone that people look to for you know maybe advice or coaching or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm the most introverted person you've ever met in your life. And so, uh, what my life generally looks like is. Uh, one giant effort to get to a place where I'm by myself. <laughs> and so, you know, that has me uh, oftentimes reading and writing. Um, I appreciate art. I don't really make art anymore. I used to dabble in that as like a hobbyist. But, uh, you know, um, I feel like with time spent alone, I can do anything. You know, and I just sort of, I sort of need that. And that's where coffee shows up in my life. You know, I'm like constantly seeking out some sort of place to go introspect. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of not that flashy or or exciting, but that's really what I'm about, you know. I'm with you, man. And that is, um, that's a complicated, the complicated ecosystem of our own minds in solitude is, is for people who are, who lean into that. Uh, it's a really exciting place to be. So you don't even need to go any further. I, I get it completely. I could spend, yeah. I could spend eight hours in a coffee shop and and barely blink and just go down those sorts yeah. of roads, writing whatever it might be. Um, speaking of writing, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about your writing process and how that led you to going right with R and mm-hmm. W? Yeah, you know, I I see things. I try to see things um, on like a system level. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, kind of from above, I sort of noticed that the writing process, and I made reference to this earlier, the writing process is no different than um, the skill development process for an athlete, no different than the creative process of, a, of an artist. And that is that you have um, an image in your head, you know, um, that Anders Ericsson uses the term uh, the, um, a mental representation. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we use the term uh, the standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is sort of the, the ideal outcome, the vision. And I was doing that every single day on a batting tee, hundreds and hundreds of swings, you know, from age 10. You put the, the ball on the tee and you imagine how the ideal swing would look and feel the trajectory of the ball would, would what the ideal outcome there would be, and then you make an effort, and then you notice the deviations from this mm-hmm. this mental representation, the standard, and what you just did, 
and there's some little little dissatisfaction there, right? You feel a certain way about that, mm. and then that propels you to put the the second ball on the tee and try to iterate closer to that ideal, and and this is the process. And the closer you can sort of operate to this this ideal mental representation, this vision, the better you are. Right now. Just to complicate things a little bit, as you get better at the skill, your image of perfection or the standard just gets better. Right. 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 Um, you know, Peyton Manning just knows how a proper pass looks and feels at a more specific and more accurate way than I do. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'll throw a football and be like, I don't know, it'll look kind of good. Right. Yeah. But he has nuance. Right. And so, uh, for me, writing is the same iterative process as uh, the process of trying to be a, a great hitter or, or to do anything. And so, I have, you know, in my head, an idea of what the, the ideal sentence is, or the ideal paragraph is, or the ideal message is. And then I attempt what's in my mind, mm-hmm. and then I'm dissatisfied with what I just wrote, and then I write it again. Right. Right. And now you, you, you get those reps in just like anything else and then the the iterative process becomes better. People who who people love to tell me how bad they are writing and that's why they don't do it. Um, mm-hmm. you know they're at a place in their development or lack thereof mm-hmm. where they wanna say something and they write a sentence and it sounds horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh and when I write a sentence now today, it might just sound a little better. It's a little closer to the sure. ideal, but it, neither are are there, right? And, and and sort of the secret weapon is the ability to to hit backspace and try it again, or put another ball in the tee and try it again. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. That's like uh, I hear that too. And you hear uh, in schools, you hear like, "Well, I'm bad at math," or you know, "I'm bad at mm-hmm. writing," or whatever it might be. And that's fine. It's probably like because you don't engage with it. Here too, strength and conditioning serves such an incredible metaphor. You would never say, uh, "Well, I'm I'm really I'm really out of shape, and that's mm-hmm. why I don't run, or that's why I don't right. that's yeah. why I don't do things that would otherwise get me." It, it's it's really clear in those spaces. Um, yeah. But I, but I I think if more people kind of got that, the, the truth in either case, the person who knows that he or she needs to be in shape but does not work out. Um, or the person who knows that they need to get better at math or writing or whatever, but does not engage with it, it's, it comes full circle. It's, it's fear. It's like I could, I, if I do this, it's going to be painful. I know that there's yeah. going to be a gap. And, and I think if you, get the, if you work to, um, not to get too artsy here, but uh, Basho is like an ancient uh, haiku poet, which you may know. He has a term like he, he would spend all day coloring his mind. And then he would just look mm-hmm. at the world and write a couple lines, and it was this beautiful thing. Cool. I, uh, yeah, and, That's cool. and I actually wrote a. I'll say this: I had a, a whole show. I had a show, and I wrote a little chapbook of poems called "Colors of Mind," and it was just like because I was so enamored with this idea, it's this awesome. process that like you color your mind and then you engage. So for that reason, like things like like swimming, swimming is the best mm-hmm. workout I could ever do because I'm really bad at it. The efficient, mm-hmm. I'm so inefficient. That I just churn, I burn so many calories just trying to yeah, stay right. afloat, stay um, above water. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, but I, but I like, I really have, very thankfully, because I didn't start like that. I, I, I'm 
open to leaning into those things now mm-hmm. to lean into the discomfort because I know that, that that's where growth happens. And, and then as you kind of learn more about like what growth actually is, you're like, not only am I excited for that, but there's, there literally is no other way. I yeah. cannot, I can't stand on deck and get better at swimming. Yeah. There's, there's sort of two, two things at, at play here. Uh, and I think one's a more micro thing and it, it's an acute thing and, and one's more of a macro view of it and and the, the micro one is because of fear and uh, the sort of burden of responsibility that I think we all mm-hmm. feel consciously or subconsciously uh, I observe that people are are desperately trying all day long like a full-time job trying to relinquish responsibility mm-hmm. you know so, yeah. so, the, so the statement like hey man I totally would and just I'm not like you man I can't right. I'm not a good writer. Hands are tied, you know. Right, right. <laughs> I can't. I'm not a good swimmer like you. So I just I'll be over here, you know. Right. It, it is a is a an effort in an acute way to to feel free of the responsibility there, mm-hmm. and uh, that's a tragedy. Um, the the macro view, in my opinion, is sort of you know gets into uh, the, there's one book you're probably familiar with that that anyone who enters coaches prep has to read. And it's not a it's not a movement oriented book. It's it's uh, Carol Dweck's work, yeah, uh, mindset, you know. And, and so, and she just pre- presents this framework of two perspectives. Mm-hmm. And if you move about your life uh, with the, you know either pair of glasses on, you know the lens in which you're you're viewing the world, you'll sure. have very different experiences and one is this sort of fixed mindset which generally you know you believe that your traits are or are more or less decided for you they're they're fixed hey some people are good swimmers and some aren't mm-hmm. right some people are good at math and some aren't and if you believe that then you you would need to explain <laughs> why it is that you aren't getting the results that you want and the, the way you would explain it is you, you have no responsibility here mm-hmm. left my Hands are tied. Now that's a that's a, a very fragile place to live. One because you can't really develop yourself, mm-hmm. and two if you ever get feedback, negative feedback about something that you believe to be true about yourself, it really jams you up, mm-hmm. right? Like if you were a fixed mindset individual and you believed in your in your mind up until this day, until you met me, that you're a great coach, mm-hmm. and I observed you coach and gave you feedback said hey man here's some areas I think you could really improve Mm -hmm. that would jam you up because it would challenge your whole worldview and most people with that perspective would need to do kind of one of two things they would need to make me bad (laughs) obviously you don't get it right Mm -hmm. Right. villainize the opponent yeah yeah or or you would need to deflect it in some way right like Mm -hmm. you would need to to dodge this sort of unchangeable truth about you Uh, now the the growth mindset, the sort of opposite view, right. just begins with with a worldview that says all of our traits are are malleable, they're changeable. I can improve and and get worse at everything, mm-hmm. and and that perspective frees you up for the type of culture we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. the type of growth that we're all interested in on a daily basis, which is that you know negative feedback is good news mm-hmm. because it's it's, it's Showing you how it is that you could iterate to the next level, right? Here are some areas I think you can improve your coaching, 
with a growth mindset, you'd be like, unreal, man. Like, let yeah. me take a look at this because now you have a, a secret weapon to, to be even better in the future. Dude, I've, I've got to tell you a quick story. And this is um, – so I've, I, I coach football. I, and I coached the defensive line for a team, a, a big school just north of Chicago. And we we played our, our crosstown rival who we've been playing for more than 100 years. It's the oldest high school rivalry in the state. It was awesome. Oh. We played at their place. Um Stands are packed. It's Friday Night Lights, like very stereo, you know, exactly what you'd imagine. Mm -hmm. And our D line play. I'm getting the chills thinking about. They were lights out. They like we had we had 11 sacks. I mean that's unheard of. 11 sacks. We uh, it was like first half was under 50 yards rushing. Like they were just crushing. I'm so proud of my. I still I might still have the article. I still talk to those guys today. And and I'm not kidding, dude. I wish I wish you could have been there to kind of pat them on the back after I talked to him after the game because one of the first things I said was, you know, congratulations, you earned all every success you had tonight. You earned and, and went over that. And then I said, and here's what I think, Keen, uh, I think you you didn't hug the corner tight enough and you got too much depth yeah. off the tap. And I think we left one or two out there still. You know, we could have we could have yeah. taken eleven to thirteen. And and yeah. I like and but I get challenged with that too because I'm like. It, no, let them celebrate. I'm like, let, we're celebrating it. We're celebrating For it. And sure. the ultimate optimism is recognizing that we still, even after this wonderful game, we still haven't reached our peak. Like that's mm-hmm. optimism. That That's not negative. Mm-hmm. That is like, holy cow, this thing could be mm-hmm. at another level. And, and, and that environment is one, it sounds like, that uh, would allow for that type of communication. Right. Like right. that you wouldn't need to like double down and like explain all of this. They'd be like, right. yeah, no, for sure. I missed my my yep. my cut, and and here's where we need to be. And I'm highly interested in you you saying that, right? But if you didn't have that type of connection or the sort of shared purpose right. on the team, you know, it's just sort of like you know, you dropped into a, a random other high school who you've never right. met, and you right. told them that they'd be like, yo, bro, like, save it, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and and so the context of this high performance team allows for that type of communication. Without yeah. a doubt, that's right. That's exactly. It, it hinges on safety and trust. That that has yeah. to be developed before the moment of competition. It's exactly totally. right. Um, all right. Well, so here's what I think. We we have to turn it over to the lightning round. But I think, um, and I hope that this is not our last conversation because I feel like every yeah. every time we get into a sentence, I'm like, it's like I kind I want to take it this way, and I've got all these other ideas that I want to explore. But um, if if we're comfortable, kind of just putting a pin in it for lack of a yeah. better term, totally. um, and coming back to some of these ideas. Um, I'm going to pass you off to Alex if you're ready. Yeah, of course. Are you sitting down over ready. there? I'm sitting down. I tried to prepare for this, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get annihilated. All right, so no, you got yeah, it. hit me he, with he's, it. He's adapting on the fly, so yeah. you don't uh, know what you're going to get. <laughs> right. the, uh, the, the questions I sent you were a bit of a red herring because I do kind of like to uh, create them as we go based Restart. on some of the things okay. that you say. So. Okay. Uh, yeah. What was your Hit me with it. first job? Damn. You know, I'm weird. I didn't really have a first job. My first real job was uh, professional baseball. You know? Uh, so I, I did a little as a kid, uh, you know, but I didn't, I didn't ever have a – I didn't work at the local restaurant or whatever. Uh, I, was, I was an athlete junkie. That's uh, 
That's a new one, I'll say. Most first jobs are like, I worked at the, the supermarket, like you said, worked yeah, at the coffee I, shop. It's like, oh, I was a professional baseball player. That's a, yeah, that's a new true. one. Um, what was the first album you ever bought and the first concert you ever went to? Oh, shit. Okay, this is a great story. Um, okay, so first album that was that I ever owned was bought for me, and this was Christmas, who knows when, and that was Eric Clapton Unplugged. Ooh, pretty good a great one yeah first album i ever bought though yeah <laughs> all right so that was a uh, montel jordan uh you know <laughs> yeah. really that was, yeah. <laughs> that, that was a cd I, I bought on purpose went out of my way to warehouse music and did the whole thing just for the one song that, that i knew uh this is how we do it of, oh, course. Yeah, of course first uh, I just told the story the other day. First concert I ever went to was my buddy's 13th birthday. I was so nervous to ask my parents if I could go. Uh, was Marilyn Manson and Hole at uh, <laughs> at the Great Western Forum? Three. Okay, so this is. I remember this being on MTV, like drama. The Marilyn Manson and Courtney Love were fighting, uh, and so literally in between every song, they were just tearing each other apart. Uh, Hole and Courtney Love play their set. I'm 13. I'm like, I don't even know what I'm seeing right now. Marilyn Manson comes out like with fire and like this insane thing, you know. And uh, his third song in, uh, he jumps off of a monitor and breaks his ankle on stage. And I see him crawl, army crawl off to the side. They finish the rest of the song um, instrumental and then the house lights come on and the PA announcer says that the show has been canceled and I thought these like mohawk mayhem leather wearing dudes were gonna burn this place to the ground and I'm like little 13 year old me is like what's happening (laughs) that is is awesome that's a fantastic story Um, (laughs) what does a successful day look like for you Man, um, I don't have, so I think there's a couple different ways to answer the question based on how you view that. And, and for me, it's not like there's a certain number of things that I would need to accomplish in a day, you know? So I, I live for, um, like freedom. And so every day it's like completely different. And, uh, I appreciate that about uh, my life. So, um, that would be unique to the day. And uh, that sounds like a weird way to, to answer the question, no, I but I, I take pride in all my days being different. Oh, like that. You talk a lot about this growth mindset consistently challenging yourself. So I'm curious in what ways you feel you are currently challenging yourself. Yeah. So new things, uh, writing the book was the, the adversity that I sort of chose for myself for the last three and a half years and that I'm just a different person because of that. Uh, in a physical sense, I've been enrolled in uh, a jujitsu practice. And so that's an interesting one that is kind of moving the needle for me in a different way. Nice. Yeah. So you just mentioned uh, your book. Yeah. What was like, what was an unexpected enjoyment that came from that and then what were some unexpected frustrations as well that came with writing the book well whereas I knew the book was going to be this sort of bout with adversity that would sort of drive my own development it became extremely meta 
like I, I was li literally living the, the exact process of the book itself mm -hmm. because it was my edge. It was the most difficult thing I could imagine doing. And the book is sort of all about like paving the way for why we ought to be doing this thing. And here's what's interesting about that. And this is, this is the beautiful part. This is like the beautiful part of this two-sided question. Um, knowing that it's difficult and, and knowing everything that we all know as coaches about adversity and like doing the thing doesn't make it any easier. And I think it takes being in the, the ring, so to speak, to, to recognize that. You know, you can start to feel theoretical about this sort of like, hey, man, we need to like challenge ourselves and adversity strikes and, you know, we're going to lean into that and all that. Um, it still hits extremely hard. And it, it's so funny how we talk ourselves out of or somehow expect it to be different. You know, uh, by definition, has to be horribly difficult. And so I sort of forgot <laughs> that the peak top end limit of my ability feels that way. And uh, that was a beautiful thing to tap into again after like my baseball career. Yeah. You know, um, the, 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 the negative part or the, the sort of difficult part is I can't imagine, I couldn't have imagined how difficult that was going to be. And you, you go through the complete spectrum of, of human emotion. Um, I wanted to quit. Uh, it affected me beyond just the project. Uh, the, writing that book almost cost me my whole life. And uh, it was, I can't articulate how difficult that was. Wow. Um, so we have this concept at the Good Athlete Project uh, called kind coaches, a coach who is able to be kind when they need to be, also tough on you when they need to be. And I, I think based it, it, not only on our conversation today, but what we know about you, I think that you're definitely one of those people that falls into that category. I was wondering if there was someone in your life who you've come across, uh, whether it was a coach of yours in baseball or while you were building your business, that you felt fit into that mold of being a kind coach and having those that both sides to them of being able to be tough on you when they needed to be, but also kind in, in that way. Oh gosh, of course. The, the example that's coming to mind and, and I was fortunate to have great coaches throughout my whole career, but a uh, gentleman by the name of Tommy Butler and he, he passed away uh, late last year actually. And he, um, He's a baseball scout for the Chicago White Sox, actually, um, and he's from out here. That's right, wearing the hat. Uh, he's from out, uh, or lived out here uh, in Compton, actually, and and uh, I played a lot of a lot of baseball, kind of in the uh, more difficult neighborhoods of Los Angeles, and he was my guy. You know, we had a, a solid group, and he had a cane, and he was like you know, he felt like he was a hundred the whole time I knew him, uh, you know, and he was a tough guy. His hands were biggest hands I've ever, sh you know, I had to shake in my life. And, and he had this real high pitched voice and he was the hardest dude I've ever met, you know, and he would check everyone. 
but deep down he was really sweet and uh, I just miss his uh, you know because he had this cane whenever he would call timeout and go speak to the pitcher it would be I mean it would be like a seven minute walk to the mound you know it's just like <laughs> it was just like oh man here he comes you know and he'd walk all the way out there and at this point by the time he got there he had the attention of everyone in the you know stands everyone's just waiting for this thing and and you know, sometimes he would speak loudly so everyone can hear, and other times he would speak softly and, and be really hard. And he had the uh, a heart of gold, but you know, he he'd finish one of these seven minute walks out to the mound, and he would come out, and uh, he'd reach down and pick up two pebbles on the ground, and he'd put them in his hand, and his hand was so big that the pebbles looked so small, and he'd go to the pitcher who was like not really competing well or making some sort of you know blunder on the mound, and he would go. His high pitched voice. You see these right here? And we're looking at these, looking at these little pebbles in his hand. He goes, "Your nuts must be about this big." He goes, "I need you, to, you know, I need you to bear down out here." And they're just like, "Okay, Tommy." You know, he's just airing this poor pitcher out. You know, he walked back. It would take seven minutes for him to get back to the dugout, and the pitcher would just have a meltdown. You know, it's such a sweet. Such a sweet guy, such a tough guy, and uh, he, he had a heart of gold, but he, he would threaten everybody with his little mini pocket knife to, to let everybody know who's boss, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, yeah. All right, so this is the last one. You are a leader in this field, and we want to know what advice you would give to a future leader who's hoping to embark on a similar journey to yours. Oh man. So this is for me always one about curiosity. And I think if you, if you are able to nurture curiosity in your life, you then have an opportunity to grow forever. And, and curiosity sounds like a, a fun, happy word and it's light and easy, but you need to be curious about your, your edge. You need to be curious about um, you know, the question, how might I be wrong about this? You need to be curious about how you need to improve. And if you're genuinely curious, not about how you're like the man or the woman or how you're awesome, if you're, if you're in the truest sense curious, then you can improve forever and, and you will develop beyond your current capacity. And, and that's one of the, the clear definitions we have for leadership you know, which is a, a role that we can opt into. And that is that you're, uh, one, responsible for the results that are never fully inside of your control. And you're also responsible for that, that iter iterative process we talked about earlier, that you can evolve yourself and others. And uh, I think sometimes when people get into some sort of leadership role, uh, they think that they're now... Uh, they've arrived and they're, they're immune to this growth process. So we have to be curious forever. Awesome. I love that. You killed it. Lightning round. Lightning Thank round you. is over. Damn. Tommy Butler got a shout out. How about that? Tommy Butler. Tommy Butler. I love it. Go White Sox. And, and you know what is really intriguing to me? So hold the standard. Um, another way of saying that, this is how we do it. 
How do you feel about that? that and that is what we call a call. <laughs> there you go. That's right. Inspired <laughs> by Montel Jordan from a very early age. Love, love that city. Um, <laughs> classics. So, hey, uh, I really do. We got to close this with this. I, I we, we don't um, we don't invite people on that we don't believe in. We're not always right, but they usually pan out to be pretty great people. Uh, I think we're right in this case. I genuinely appreciate the work that, that you do. Um, we try to, although it is nice to be positive, there's no fluff in this comment. Um, I think your approach is one that people need to hear more about. Um, I think you know if, if our goal as a nonprofit organization is to expand and, and give people processes that work and show coaches how to give, actually teach life lessons. We have a tagline where it's like, sports don't teach life lessons. Sports have the potential to teach life lessons, but it depends on culture, it depends on intentionality and, and who's, who's um, essentially creating that environment. It's, it's the coach. And if coaches have this kind of thoughtful um, process of accurate looking, uh, teaching things that can transfer to the rest of one's life so that once baseball is over, you can move laterally and just churn along, as in your mm-hmm. case, uh, mm-hmm. then we have really set people up um, for all sorts of success. So yeah. thank you for what you're doing. Thanks for spending time with us today. And if people want to come find you, what would you say the best avenues for that are? Yeah, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Um, you can find me like Instagram, Twitter style at Functional Coach. All one word. Uh, holdthestandard.com has all of a, a sort of like educational resources for entrepreneurs and leaders and coaches. There's some online courses there and some seminars that I teach around the world. And um, and yeah, deucegym.com is where you can find all the, the fitness stuff. There's a blog there every day. There's more than 2,000 articles, little wow. two-minute reads that are, uh, you know, I, I tell people – They'd be better off. They just read the blog every day and came to the gym every now and then versus the other way around. Yeah. So check those out. Check them out. Awesome, man. Well, um, I meant what I said earlier. I hope this is the first conversation of many. So. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. This week's episode is brought to you by Remind Recover. Remind Recover is a supplement that helps athletes support brain health. Similar to how you drink a protein shake to help your muscles recover after a workout, Remind Recover has been scientifically formulated to give you the nutritional building blocks to help support healthy brain function. I am a huge fan of Remind Recover. It is as close to the science as any supplement I've seen, and feel free to check out their website for more. It's remindrecover.com. And when you go there, if you want to place an order, and I recommend it, use the code GOODATHLETE for a discount on checkout.